Hi everybody, I'm Seth Busby, editor of Flying Solo. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we step inside the minds and lives of soloists and small business owners. If presenting to an audience or pitching to clients is part of the bread and butter of your business, then my next guest has some fantastic strategies to share. David Fish is a renowned keynote speaker and author whose new book, What It Takes to Create Winning Presentations, delivers some fabulous advice on how to employ storytelling to connect, engage and convince. If you'd like to become a more effective communicator, then listen up because David has plenty of great advice to share. Fishy, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Absolute pleasure and looking forward to our conversation today. Excellent. Now, you had a pretty unusual dream as a kid. You wanted to be a blimp pilot. <laughs> Firstly, probably some of our listeners don't even know what a blimp is. <laughs> and others like, where did that come from? It's not your, it's not your run-of-the-mill dream. No, it's not. And it did freak out my careers counsellor at school. Um, so blimps, airships, um, the little Goodyear, um, flying cigars in the sky. Uh, where I grew up in England, uh, it was a town called Bedford, uh, has a, a steeped in airship history, in fact. Um, and at the time I was at school, they were building airships there, uh, funded by the great Australian Alan Bond uh, at the time. And I used to see these things flying over my school and I was just fascinated by them, this floating cigar in the sky, often emblazoned with advertising um, for all sorts of companies. Um, and so as a kid, I'd cycle out to Cardington where they made these blimps um, and I would just literally offer to do anything to be around them, uh, wash them, just sit and hang out with the crew. And when my careers counsellor said, what do you want to do for a career? And they're going through all the, the usual um, lawyer, doctor uh, options in their book. I said, blimp pilot. And they said, what? I said, blimp pilot. And they said, I don't think we've got a listing for blimp pilot. I said, don't worry. I've got it all figured out. I'll become an engineer. I'll learn engineering. Then they'll say I'm a good engineer, but I'm a better pilot. And they'll teach me to be a blimp pilot. And that was my career plan which was great until Alan Bond uh, had a few financial issues. Uh, and with that, the company that used to make these airships went bust. Um, and so I had to change direction slightly at that point. Not the not the last time I've had to make some uh, career choices and change directions, but um, certainly at the time it was, a, it was a big change of direction for me and my, my dream of being a blimp pilot. Yeah, so the Alan Bond went nuts. No more blimp pilot job for you. Yeah, <laughs> where yeah. where did you decide to go from there? You say you changed direction. What what was your next plan? I mean, I guess the the other part of that 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 sort of fascinated me and and has definitely become a big part of my career um, was the advertising side of it. These, these blimps are always carrying major brands from Coca Cola to Kodak back in the day. Fuji Film, obviously Goodyear, famous for its blimps. Um, and I got into hot air ballooning as a substitute for blimps um, and again heavily involved in the world of advertising and making brands famous and that led me down into a, uh, what has been a nearly a 30-year marketing career from client side into advertising agencies, uh, into media owners um, selling advertising and working on the strategic side of um, how advertisers and that's a lot of what's come through in this book, how advertising gets sold. Um, so I've done all segments of advertising. And I think right back to those early days, I was just fascinated by brands being emblazoned on these things floating around over my school and um, I know how brands 
communicated their message and and sort of back in the day for me that sort of inspiration came from those those flying machines that i'd see in the aerial structures and um so yeah that led me into a, a marketing career of nearly some 30 years so what is it that you love about marketing and and did you have an equal passion for that as you did for flying Flying's in my core. I think um, there's a, a Leonardo da Vinci quote that says, "Once you've once you've looked to the sky and you've touched flight, um, you'll always have your eyes on the sky, and you'll never you'll never um, not look skyward." Uh, and I think that's true for me. Um, it's been a part of my life since literally uh, as long as I can remember, sort of back to the the early years. I got my pilot's license at sixteen, so I'd say that's my first passion. But it's it's not a career. Um, it's something I love to do. Uh, and love to fund through a career. Um, whereas advertising is about, uh, I think it's the the way we communicate. And again, this is a big a big piece that's come through in, in my motivation to write this this book and get into uh, the topic of winning presentations. Is is how we communicate, how we engage people, how we convince people um, to to buy into the message that we're putting out into the world what it is that it takes to make one brand famous when another one isn't. Um, you know, we've got brands um, that we love and we've got brands that we barely know. Um, and so that really intrigued me um, as well as the, uh, the sort of what sits behind all of that. Obviously, we see a lot of advertising um, in, in terms of what we see on our television and, and in our feeds. Um, but behind that sits a huge amount of what the, the work I was heavily involved in, which is the strategic thinking. Um, who is your audience? What do they care about? How do you engage with them? How do you create something meaningful? Particularly when we're back in the days of um, 30 second TV spots and billboards. Um, so that really was the piece that drew me in. Mm. And what about uh, your keynote speaking? Because you, you also have a very famous uh, keynote presentation, Attitude for Altitude, which kind of shares your personal journey and it's very inspirational, I think, for a, a lot of people. Can you kind of elaborate how you went from, um, you know, that traditional sort of marketing strategic side of things to going out and becoming basically a global presenter? It's, it, was a, it was an unexpected uh, change of direction and um, and like many changes of direction, it was a, a crossroads and, and led to other crossroads to where I am now. So back in 2014, um, I had a diagnosis of leukemia. I was working in advertising at the time, heavily involved in pitching um, for new business um, on major pieces of business. We were working uh, incredibly hard, uh, six, seven day weeks, long hours. Uh, and then, and I was literally, you would say in my career, I was flying. Uh, we were winning business. We were pitching on amazing pieces of work. Uh, and then I got this diagnosis that said I had leukemia and I needed six months of chemo. And that caused an instant slowdown. <laughs> it's a really um, dramatic piece of news to receive and process and share with people. Um, and in that six months, it was actually really good for me to take some time out and think about, well, hang on, who am I? How have I got to be where I am? What matters to me? Um, what have I let go of? Uh, what boundaries have I let uh, slip that were perhaps important and have now eroded? Um, and so literally there was a deep period of reflection. And in that time is when I actually realized that flying was was really core to me and to my happiness and to um, my learning and development and stretch. Um, and I'd let that go. I'd let uh, the pace of work, uh, chasing titles. I'd got chief in my title and I was super excited about that. 
Um, but it actually really didn't matter. Um, my title was way less important than the work I was doing or the people I was helping. Um, I learned that leadership is not about a title. It's about how you inspire other people through the things that you do, the actions that you take and what you put out in the world. And and in that reflection, um, that I made some dis- big decisions. Uh, firstly, to bring flying back into my life. Secondly, to reset some boundaries, um, very strong um, and firm boundaries around how I would and wouldn't work and the type of work I would and wouldn't do and directions I want to take in the future. Um, and initially that led into sharing that story um, because as I talked to people about my kind of reset, if you like, um, people were like, well, you've got, to, you've got to tell other people about that. That's really inspiring. That will help a lot of people, not just through their own um, uh, journeys with, with different um, illnesses and mental health challenges, but just generally in life where people get to that kind of, I was 40 at the time that happened and, you know, you get that, is this what I want to do? Is this my calling? Is this my purpose um, kind of mindset? And so that's where Attitude for Attitude came from as a keynote. It was sharing my story of, of literally flying. Um, I was a quantum, Qantas Platinum Frequent Flyer. I had chief in my title. It was all going really well. And then suddenly someone slaps you with this diagnosis. And you're like, oh, okay, what does that mean? Um, and mortality is a great um, wake-up call. Um, at any point in life, mortality uh, is a great point to stop and go oh, okay uh let me think about this what do i if i if i get the gift of another 40 years um what do i want to do with those um and is this is this really how i want to be using my time and helping people and doing the things that matter and are important to me so that's where that keynote came from um and uh yeah it was a, at the time i actually thought maybe that was that was the calling was to share that story but it's it's a story within stories. Um, it's it's not everything um, that I do or everything that I stand for. Um, I believe passionately that we things like diagnosis of cancer and, and illness um, shape us, but I don't think they should define us. So I, when I was sharing that story, there was a point at which I had to reflect on that and go, well, part of this is actually my own recovery. Part of sharing this story is my own dealing with the journey that I've been on, but it doesn't have to be just who I am. There is there is more to my background and more to what I can give to the world. Yeah, so um, that cancer journey isn't what completely defines you. It's an opportunity to, you know, take a challenge and shift your mindset and do things differently and kind of transform your perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, it, it, it's an ironic thing to say, but it was a gift in that it, it was a real slap in the face and a, you know, run into a concrete wall, but it gave me a moment that I may not have otherwise had. I may just have kept running like so many of us do on the, uh, on the treadmill of chasing titles um, and climbing ladders without actually having that moment to reflect. And that was really what I wanted to share at that time was that um a lot of things that we think are important and not important and a lot of the things that we let go and dismiss are really important. Um, so that was part of that. It was part of my journey and sharing that um, has helped a lot of people and, and sort of started new journeys for them. Mm. And you spoke about how you kind of let go of your flying, but it made you realise you needed to bring that back into your life. But it wasn't just as simple as that. You decided you were going to learn to fly aerobatics, didn't you? I did. Um, yeah. <laughs> Whilst you were undergoing treatment? Yeah, it's moderately controversial. Um, <laughs> I had this little um, moment of, okay, flying needs to come back into my life. Um, I've always been somebody that's 
pushed boundaries. So um, extreme um, forms of aviation, record-breaking um, flights. And um, I'd, I'd met a couple of people um, and been quite inspired by this idea of flying um, aerobatic aeroplanes. And um, Janine was somebody who had been um, in a terrible car accident um, and become very crippled by this accident, but had gone on to learn to fly. And so she inspired me and I actually reached out to the school that she learned to fly at and said, look, here I am, I've got no hair. I am having chemo. I am on a lot of drugs. Uh, I am a bit spaced out for quite a few days of the week, but I reckon um, there's one or two days where I'm pretty good from a um, nausea and drug taking perspective that, that I could fly in those days. I don't have a medical, um, but I'd love to start to fly. And they were like, cool. Let's give this a go. And I told my doctors that this was what I wanted to do and which days would be best within my treatment plan and everything else. And they were like, you're, you're doing what? So I'm going to learn to fly aerobatics. I want to get my pilot's license back and I'm going to work with the Civil Aviation Authority after treatment and do all the medical stuff. But right now I just want to start flying aerobatics. And they were like, okay, we're doing everything we can to keep you alive and you're going to go out and fly an aeroplane upside down deliberately. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it was an interesting conversation, but one that I eventually we worked through and uh, with, I call it, endorsement's a strong word, um, with their <laughs> agreement around um, how this could work within my treatment plan. Um, I literally started one day a week. Um, actually, it was one day every two weeks when I had a, a clear period uh, where I felt uh, well enough to fly. Um, I'd travel out to Bankstown Airport and start to learn to fly, the uh, re-engage with flying, but also um, get back into uh, a whole new form of flying. I'd never flown an aircraft upside down. Um, and so it was, it was incredibly liberating for my mind and also for my motivation to be able to go out and do something so extreme and so unusual, but with such a path to work through, to keep learning. Um, and, and I think it really did help in those last few months of treatment the, the, the back end of treatment is actually can be quite difficult. Um, it's where the tiredness is the greatest, but. Um, I had this escape. I had this thing to look forward to. And yeah, I went on to get qualified and work with CASA to get my medical back and then started competing and um, started winning medals um, in aerobatic competitions, which was which was quite amazing. <laughs> That's a pretty incredible journey. So how do you think the discipline that you've learned from that and, you know, even the dynamics of flying itself, how does that play into your approach when you're um, you're going into businesses and speaking to them about strategy and communicating with them. So I think one of the, I think the, the word there that you used is exactly that: it's discipline. Um, aviation is uh, all aviation um, operates in in a, a very unique environment. Um, we're not meant to be off the ground, whether we're in an A three eighty or whether we're in a small aerobatic aeroplane. Um, there are some physical attributes that all have to line up to get that aircraft to work safely. And so there is a deep discipline and there's also a culture uh, of learning, um, particularly from mistakes and from accidents, far more so than there is in business. We bend a lot more rules. Um, we allow things to slip a lot more in business than we do in aviation. So you know, if a business fails, someone might write a Harvard business case study about it. Um, if a, in the case of one of the pieces that I studied and included in the book, if a space shuttle crashes, we spend billions of dollars understanding why. And those learnings are often parallels. There's, there's human factors in a lot of aviation accidents, in a lot of 
the way that aviation works effectively are about human factors. So we can actually learn a lot and take a lot from that discipline of aviation and bring it into business. And it, it doesn't mean that every step has to be on a checklist and everyone must sit down and tick a checklist in that sort of um, the way that we would do in a cockpit. But the discipline of understanding steps, the discipline of understanding process, the discipline of understanding how to navigate your way through. Um, and I'm a big, very big uh, believer and driver of um, strategic execution. I get really frustrated by strategy that goes nowhere. Um, and often what gets in the way is action plans that really become quite paralyzing. Um, and in aviation, what we do is we plan our navigation through milestones. We need to be at this point by this time to know we're going in the right direction. And if you take that approach to strategic execution, you'll be amazed at how much easier it is to execute a strategy. So there's little things like that that do cross over. Um, and so I, I just love, I love blending um, the discipline and bringing the learnings um, and the rigor um, from that, that, that space that I love so much uh, and bring it into my work. Hmm. And so you've recently put pen to paper to write what it takes to create winning presentations. And that kind of focuses on the strategic element of storytelling. Can you tell me what firstly inspired you to put your knowledge into a book? And um, secondly, a strategic storytelling, I guess we kind of, and presenting, I guess we kind of think of that from a big corporate level, you know, businesses going out to pitch and stuff, but storytelling kind of impacts all areas of your business, doesn't it? hundred percent. And and I think that to be honest, that's part of the motivation. Um, so I've been coaching and running training around uh, this area for many, many years. And um, I'm super passionate about that. There's so many great ideas, even great strategic thinking that fails to make it to market or to connect because we don't deliver the content in the right way. And so that's what the book is kind of there to address. And, and one of the things that, that, hasn't been addressed, I don't think, terribly well in the past is the structuring of stories, the structuring of content, the delivery of information versus the presenter's skills. We spend a lot of time and a lot of money um, teaching people to be good presenters, and there is a place for that. You you need someone who is articulate and can hold a room and can pace and manage nerves. That's important, but it's not everything. And particularly in a lot of business presentations, whether you're delivering a, an update on a strategic direction, whether you're pitching to investors um, or whether you're selling a product, how you structure the information, how you deliver that story to somebody so that they're engaged, they can follow along, they can take that information and do something with it. All of that really matters. And that's the gap in the market that I've been sort of closing, I guess, through doing training and coaching. But I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna close the gap just by doing um, you know, twelve, fifteen people in a room. Um, and so the book is is designed to get that information, um, the thought that my work that sits behind that out to a much larger larger audience. Mm. Some of the principles that you talk about in the book are being clear, concise, compelling. How do those principles work? It's a great question. So. Clear is, uh, clear is the first, um, and it's there for a reason, and that is that a lot of presentations don't start without the clarity behind them that's required. So clear is about knowing who the audience is, who is this presentation for, who really matters in the group of people. So it's not who's turning up in the room, it's who do I really need to connect my content with. And then it's what matters to them. 
when we understand our audience and we know what their needs are, what they want from this kind of time with us, um, and what problem we can solve for them, then we can envisage this change that we see as being possible. And that is like an anchor for a presentation. When you have that clarity of your audience, what matters to them, and the change you see as being possible, what, what that does is it stops your presentation wandering off. When we don't have it, imagine a boat in a harbour on a windy day without an anchor, it just floats around and eventually crashes into the rocks. And that's what happens. Well-meaning people bring you content. Well-meaning people have sections to add. You see something in another presentation that you think is the right slide to you, so you grab that. And the presentation meanders and becomes this complex, confusing jumble of slides, um, which doesn't then serve the presenter or the audience. And so clarity up front, spending that time to create that anchor for the presentation, the audience, what matters to them, the change you see as possible is the absolute starting point. Um, and it's where I see a lot of presentations go off the rails, to be honest, right up front, because that thinking isn't done. Then we've got to get concise in our content. Um, there will always be more content than there is time to deliver. And therefore, organizing that content into a structure that, again, serves the presenter to help them navigate through their own content, but also serves the audience to stay connected and follow along. Those two things are really, really important. And that's the job of a set of slides is to support both the presenter and the audience. We've both got to be connected to that content throughout the entire journey. And so that is where we have to be concise um, and control the flow of information. There's some specific tools um, that I detail in the book to help people do that. Um, I'm a big proponent of controlling the information. Don't just put information out there. Again, too many presentations start in the detail. There's just all oh this information. Oh, my God. Death and by you, PowerPoint. That's yeah. what I think of it as. 100%. And just, you kind of, there's this hope. I talk about the hopeful presenter. There's this this hope that at the end, some magic con conclusion draws it all together. But in reality, the audience was bored 10 minutes in. They got lost 15 minutes in, and then they started playing with their iPhone at 16 minutes, and you never get them back. And so the structure and the control of that flow of information is critical to keeping the audience engaged, um, both in you as a presenter, but also in the content you're delivering. Mm. And then we know that stories are compelling. We know that a well-told story is a compelling uh, story, and that draws the audience in. And there is a structure to, um, I think, works universally um, across um, all of the presentation types that I deal with, which is where we need to communicate key information that we need someone to understand and be able to take and do something with. There is a story structure that enables you to bring people in keep them connected, enable them to follow along, and then conclusively resolve the story. That is not a slide at the end that says thank you. <laughs> there is no <laughs> point having a slide at the end of a deck after 60 minutes of talking to people that says thank you. There is no place for that. Um, we have to conclusively resolve the journey that we've taken somebody on and tell them why we've taken up 60 minutes of their time and what they need to take away and do next as a result of giving us their time. And those kind of principles are also applicable to day-to-day -day business situations as well, aren't they? I mean, if you're if you're dealing with your consistent your customers, be clear, be concise in what you're um, you're telling them, be compelling with your offering. You know, same with maybe if you have to communicate a change in the business to your staff. I mean, that's that whole kind of framework that you've described would be applicable ac across a number of circumstances. 100%. And, and so the book actually, the book is kind of the, the 
self-help's an interesting way to tell you, but the, the book is kind of like the, the do-it-yourself version for presentations. The, a lot of the work I do is exactly that. It's with companies around their their proposition, their go-to-market strategy, how to communicate the, the entirety of their business in a clear, concise, compelling, and simple way. What the book does is gives them the tools to then continue to do that uh, in a presentation format. And absolutely, unless the presentation is one that's there to entertain or inspire, then the content of the book is applicable to all of those presentation types. An internal update, uh, a sales presentation, uh, an investor presentation, um, all of those presentations need to take an audience on a journey, need to keep them engaged throughout that journey and give the, the audience the tools to be able to take your content and do something with it. So if I'm a business owner or an entrepreneur and I'm just kind of starting to embrace strategic storytelling, what's kind of the most crucial thing I need to get on top of to make sure I start off on the right foot? Think about the audience. Number one, um, most presentations start with what we want to put out in the world. We've got an idea, we've got a product we want to sell, we've got an update we need to share. Um, we've changed something in the business and we want to tell people about it. That's, the, that's often the, the motivation for the construct of some form of presentation. The reframe of that is, so what? Why should someone care? And the, the someone we need to care is the audience that that information is going to, the, the, the group of people uh, who have a shared need, a shared problem um, that we want to take on a journey. And we have to be able to put ourselves in their shoes. And whether you're a startup uh, and you're just pushing a product out into the world for the first time, it's what, is that, what does that audience want to hear from you? What matters to them? And how do you now construct your story around that? That is the reframe um, that, that, is, that is huge as a starting point um, for all content. Do you work with many small businesses or, or mainly in the corporate space? No, so uh, mainly, mainly, most of my work is B2B. Um, and I I say that I try and stay away from organisations with swipe cards. Um, I typically work in a small, <laughs> small medium enterprise. Um, and my, my selection criteria is less around size, it's more about mindset. I work with companies that want to go on a journey to change. Um, they want help um, being more strategic. And, and I don't do the strategy. I help bring strategy to life and turn strategy into execution, into commercial outcomes. And whether that's through a PowerPoint presentation, whether that's through uh, positioning uh, or whether that's through effective planning. Um, but I work with companies of all sizes, um, but companies that want to go on a journey of change and will embrace the opportunity to change. Um, and so that does go from um, 10 people in a startup, often startups that have grown to that tipping point of going into that space of no longer being three or four people where everyone can communicate easily to 20, 30 people with internal and ex external communication now becomes critical. There's more stakeholders externally, there's more investors interested in what the business is doing, and there's more people internally than a founder or a CEO can communicate with personally. That's where strategic execution, uh, turning thinking through into effective planning and how communication comes through, whether it's a town hall update um, or a more formal presentation becomes much more critical. And that typically is sort of a starting point for me. And then I do go through into large organisations and most of Australia's large media organisations um, I work with in some form or other. Um, so yeah, it's a real, it's a real range, but there's, there's an attitude to my clients um, and it's an attitude of embracing um, the opportunity to do things better. 
What happens if you encounter someone who is resistant to change? We don't work together for very long. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, We'll go on a journey. Uh, Often, I've been doing this for a few years now um, on my own and running this business, and you you kind of kind of get good at picking it up front to be honest in terms of the conversation um there's certain situations where people need to have you know something on the books that says we've done x y and z uh, we've refreshed our vision every five years so bring someone in to refresh the vision and put some new posters in the toilet door and i can spot those and that's not the work i do um and there's others where there's just a upfront hesitancy and you're like i can see that this isn't going to go anywhere um, and so I'm pretty, I'm pretty, you know, part of that reflective journey 10 years ago was do work I love with people I want to work with who value the work I do. Um, because literally life's too short to be messing around with people who, um, you don't enjoy working with. Do you think if you kind of hadn't faced that adversity, you would still be on your old career path or, or the scale was kind of tipping another way anyway? It's a great question. Um, I I do credit a lot to that time, and that's why it's, I see it. I see it as a really helpful kick, um, as opposed to. And again, it's a reframe. I reframe that time to look at the positives in it. Um, that took a little bit of time to work through that, but um, I think you have to look for the good in all situations. And and the good from that situation was I have dramatically changed um, how I work. I may have got there. Um, but I probably wouldn't have got there as quickly. Um, and, 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 and I may not have got there at all. It's very hard to say, but, but I do reflect on that time. Um, and it literally is coming up to 10 years and it has dramatically changed my attitude to so many things, including who I choose to work with. You know, the conversation we've just had is, is centered around that. Um, and it's, it's not a luxury. You know, I have commercial realities and I have bills to pay and uh, mortgages. And so I can't, you know, uh, you know, I can't be arrogant about it, but you learn certain things about yourself when you go through experiences like that, that I think do give you a much richer perspective than maybe you, you wouldn't have had if you hadn't had that experience. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a lot of businesses at the moment that are probably you know, a bit on Struggle Street and going through a lot of changes because of the economic situation. What kind of suggestions might you have for them for them to still be able to transform perhaps through this and continue to grow? So the thing that I'd say to everyone right now that matters more, it matters all of the time, but it matters more now than ever, is be clear on the value you deliver to somebody else value and and not pricing value and discounts and bundling things but how does what you do help somebody else what problem are you solving for somebody and what needs do they have that your product your service your solution delivers against Um, as consumers we are looking for value and then some of that is pricing value but when our needs are met by a service or a product we'll pay for it and so in in all situations um, for, across every business, this is applicable to B2B and B2C. What is the need that your product serves? What, what, who is your audience? What do they need from you? And how do you dial up that value? And again, not in a monetary sense, so not you know, discount labels on products, but what that product does, what that service offers. The more you obsess about that right now, the more you'll cut through 
with the people that matters most, which are the customers you want to spend money with you. Hmm. Such great advice. I think that's probably all we've got time for. I'm sorry, Fishy, that went faster than I anticipated. <laughs> we have covered some ground for sure, from, <laughs> from blimps to diagnosis to value. How do we cover that journey? <laughs> <laughs> and did you get up in a blimp eventually? You know, I actually got my blimp license, um, as I do through an unconventional. So I did fly in blimps many times before the business went out of business. Um, but I also um, acquired uh, a, a used blimp, very small, so only a single seat uh, blimp. And I was taught to fly it by Pear Lindstrand, who is Richard Branson's ballooning buddy um, in Switzerland. So yes, I got to fly a blimp and I did get my blimp license. Um, and I did it in an unconventional way. Um, and, uh, and it was pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you. That's a, a cool place to end, I think. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.